Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Uh, we are continuing our study of the book of Matthew today, and as you can tell, the, the order of things was changed up a little bit because we will also be celebrating communion as part of our service this morning. In our study of Matthew, this is our 61st study in the book of Matthew. We're, we're moving through. Uh, a little bit at a time, and I imagine we'll have another 10 or 12 studies in Matthew. So we've been moving through as detailed as we can. If you've missed any, you, you could always go back and listen to them, uh, certainly. And we've been in the middle of a section uh, that is answering the question of what will be the signs of the end of the age. Uh, and so we've been calling it Signs of the End of the Age, Part 1, Part 2. And, and this is our sixth of those studies looking at that material that is uh, commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And they call it that again because he was on, Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, his disciples asked him a question in verse 3 to tell us what will be the sign of the end of these things, the end of the age. And Jesus then bego- begins to answer that question. Now when he says the, the age, what's this, they say the age, what's the end of the age, he's referring to the age that we presently live in. So you might look at the Old Testament age, and now you have this New Testament era. It's also called the church age oftentimes. This period of time essentially between Christ's first coming and Christ's second coming. That's the age that they're asking about. What will be the signs of the end of the age? And Jesus told us that those days are numbered and that they will come to a close at a particular point in time, and he was careful to emphasize that they will come to a close at an hour that is least expected. He would say in another place, no man knows the day or the hour. He would say not even the Son of Man knows the day or the hour. It comes at a time that is least expected, and so Jesus makes the point then that the only wise thing that a person could do, if there's no clue as to when it's going to be, is to live ever expectant of his return live ever expecting his imminent return. Because as we saw, we looked at a couple different parables. When that day does come, it will be too late to get ready. A lot of people think, you know what, well, I have the material I need, the info I need. When that day comes, I'll be sure to make sure I'm ready at that particular point in time. But Jesus makes it very clear, there will be no time to get ready when he comes. Judgment is coming. Now, the Bible talks a lot about judgment. I can't imagine many of us have Bible promise books you know, that we read for a little encouragement in the morning and we flip to the section on judgment. But the Bible has a lot to say about judgment in the scriptures. What we know is this, that all of humanity has a sin problem. All of humanity has a sin problem. Not just the bad people that you look out there and you're like, well, that guy's got a sin problem or that girl has it. But every one of us in this room and everyone that has ever walked this earth has a sin problem. And that, that's the message of the gospel that speaks into that sin problem, that though we are sinners, though we are the ones that have sinned, that that Christ Jesus is the one that took the penalty of that sin upon himself. That's the gospel message. But included with that gospel message is the very clear declaration that all of humanity has a sin problem and that sin must be judged. So, that's why it's so important. That's why we emphasize it. That's why we talk about it every time that we gather together this idea of coming to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, because unless a person is found in Christ, unless a person has come to the place where they have placed their faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, that God has enabled you to even have that faith, 
Unless we have done that, then we have to stand before a holy God in our own righteousness. And that's a very bad place to be. He agrees over there. Paul the Apostle reminds us that though Christ came in the form of a servant to suffer and die for our sins, though he came in the form of a servant to provide access for people into the presence of a holy God, what Paul reminds us is that there will come a day when every knee in heaven and every knee on earth and every knee under the earth will bow before him and acknowledge him to be who indeed he is. And so though he came in the form of a servant, and many times when we think of Jesus, we might think of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. We might think of the servant who went to the cross and what he did for us. But the reality is what the scripture teaches is that every knee will bow before him. And the Bible teaches that there are three distinct times of judgment that each inhabitant of the earth will undergo in one form or another. The Bible teaches there are three distinct forms of judgment that everyone who has ever lived on the earth will go through in one form or the other. They are these, the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne judgment, and the judgment of the nations. So every inhabitant that has ever lived or will ever live will appear before Christ at one of those three times of judgment. Now, in order of occurrence, the first of those three is what is referred to as the judgment seat of Christ. You can read about the judgment seat of Christ in Romans chapter 14, verse 10 speaks of it, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. That verse in particular reads, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in his body, whether for good or for evil. Now, it's important to understand when Paul says we must all appear, Paul is writing to Christians. So the judgment seat of Christ is a time of review and a time of reward for the believer. That's Paul's point in the verse when he adds that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So again, it's very important that we understand that this is a judgment, uh, that this judgment is a judgment for believers and unbelievers. So this is not a judgment of condemnation, but rather this is a judgment of commendation, okay? So this is a judgment of believers, not to decide whether you're going to go to heaven or go to hell, but it's a judgment of commendation of the work that you have done here in the body. It's an assessment. Again, not to determine whether a person goes to heaven or hell, because it's the work of Christ that determines whether a person goes to heaven or hell, and if you place your faith in that work. This is a judgment of the lives that a person has lived after they have come to Christ. And that's why it's important to emphasize again and again that this is for believers only. I emphasize it, I stress it, because in the verse it specifically speaks of judgment of the things that are done. You see it there? It says what is due for what he has done in the body. And if you read through that quickly, you could walk away with this impression, well, a person has to go before the judgment seat of Christ, will weigh their deeds. If they were more good than bad, then they get to go into heaven. But that's not what this passage is talking about. This passage is already talking about believers that have dealt with the heaven problem. This is talking about an assessment of a person's life after they have become a believer, not of their works. Again, heaven's not in question. What is judged, maybe we should use a different word, what is weighed, what is assessed, are the works of a believer during the remaining time uh, of their days here on the earth. 
after becoming a believer. Now, Paul would write in the book of Ephesians that we are God's workmanship. God has done a work in the lives of believers. We are God's workmanship, and he says we are, in, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. So those good works don't save us. I hope we all know that and we understand it. But we were nonetheless created in Christ Jesus for good works, not for salvation, but as a demonstration of our salvation. We've been saved. God has changed us. He's worked in us. And now he's moved us to action. It's a demonstration of God's work in his life that his work might be manifested in our, in our lives. And it's those works that will be assessed at the judgment seat of Christ. So Paul describes it, I told you in 1 Corinthians 3. This is how he describes that day. It starts in verse 12. He says, now if anyone builds on the foundation, I'll just throw it out. What's the foundation? Jesus. Jesus. There you go. Good. All right. The foundation is what Jesus has done. He's given us salvation. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, <coughs> excuse me, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day, that day of the judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So sobering words, isn't it? Everything you do and the reasons why you do them, like take this button off here, I can't get it. There, sorry. Everything you do and the reasons why you do them will be judged and will be assessed. And so you may do a lot of work for Jesus, but in reality, that work that you're doing for Jesus is that, so that people will look at you and say, you're such a good person. You're so wonderful. And if that was your real motivation behind it, that's wood, hay, and straw. It'll be burned up, the scripture says. If, on the other hand, your desire is to serve the Lord, and maybe someone sees that and says, wow, you're awesome, thanks so much. But that wasn't your desire at all, you just honestly wanted to bring glory to the Lord, well, then that will stay. That'll be the gold, silver, and precious stones. But everything will be assessed. This will be a time, this judgment seat of Christ, where the works that we do and the motivations behind what we do will be judged by the Lord. We know it will take place sometime following the rapture, prior to Christ's return, with his, as the groom, remember the bride comes back with Christ, he's the groom, prior to Christ's return in the second coming. So it takes place sometime after the rapture and sometime before the second coming. I think if you go to look at the book of Revelation, you also see it takes place before this event, which is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. So let's just assume, some of you look at me like, what are you talking about, <laughs> or whatever. Let's just assume it takes place shortly after we are raptured. And again, prior to the return of Christ. That's the first, the judgment seat of Christ. The second time of judgment that is recorded for us in the scripture that I'm going to look at today, not necessarily chronologically, but the second time of judgment is referred to as the great white throne judgment. And you can read about the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. Now I'm going to read quickly through a few verses there. If you want to turn there, I don't know if we have these on the screen, but um, I'll read them to you. Starting in verse 11 of chapter 20, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we have the second judgment. Again, it's referred to commonly as the great, the, excuse me, not the great, the great white throne judgment. It's different from the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, it's important that you understand that. As I mentioned, the judgment seat of Christ takes place sometime right after the rapture. It takes place in heaven while the tribulation is going on down here on the earth. That's the judgment seat of Christ. And again, that's an assessment of the works of believers. Believers go before the judgment seat of Christ. This judgment, the great white throne judgment, it takes place after the tribulation. So that other one took place during. This takes place after. This also takes place in heaven, we see here, or you might say just outside the gates of heaven, if you want to think of it that particular way. And what we learn from Revelation chapter 20 is this particular event doesn't take place during the tribulation. I think I just said that inadvertently. It takes place following the millennium. This event takes place following the millennium. And we know the millennium, the thousand-year righteous reign of Christ. This is a judgment of everyone that has ever lived, that has not placed their faith in the work of Christ on the cross. Everyone who has ever lived that has not placed their faith in the work of Christ on the cross. So this is a judgment of unbelievers. Judgment seat of Christ, believers. The great white throne judgment, unbelievers. Revelation chapter 20, we read, says that everyone, both small and great, it says, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. This is a judgment of unbelievers. Everyone, both small and great, will come before the throne. Their lives will be assessed. And as we read in the passage, two different set of books will be opened here. The first book that will be opened, verse 12 says, or is referred to as the book of life. And the book of life is a very important book. If you look at verse 15, it says, if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So that's a pretty significant book to have your name written in, as you can imagine. The second book that is listed in those verses is actually a set of books. Now, they're not given a name, but will essentially be a book or books that are listing all the deeds that a person has ever done. So again, if you look at verse 12, it says, And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So you have a book of life, and then you have a book of deeds, we'll call it. A book of life and a book of deeds. So the scene might look something like this. And I doubt it actually looks like this, but I'm just trying to paint a picture for us. There's a line of people there. Somebody says, next. And a person steps forward. They say, name. And the person states their name. After they have that name, an exhaustive search is then done in the book of life for the listing of that person's name. Pages are checked and they're rechecked. Could you spell your name for me? Spelling is confirmed, et cetera, et cetera. When it is sufficiently determined that the person is indeed not listed in the book of life, then that book is kind of pushed to the side, and another book or series of books are now opened and placed on the table instead. These are the books of the deeds of a person's life. It's as if the determination has been made, okay, 
You stand here in judgment before the holy God based on your own righteousness. Let's allow the process to begin. And they open up the book and they say, I see that when you were three, you, I don't know what three-year-olds do, but you did something. All right, and they read that off and they list it. Flip some pages. And here you are at seven. Flip some pages. Oh boy, here's the teen years. A big chapter in the book. And page by page, for some folks, book by book, the person's deeds are exposed to reveal whether or not that person is righteous enough, based on their own deeds, to enter into heaven, into the very presence of a holy God. And what person after person after person will discover is that they fall woefully short of the standard of heaven. And the standard of heaven, the, the, the standard is holiness. And as these deeds are bearing out, no one is holy. That's the reason why the book of life is open first. Because anyone listed in that book has come to God not based on their own righteousness or a righteousness of their own, but they've come to God based on the righteousness of Christ. That's the righteousness that Paul was thinking of. Remember, Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So I think all of us here would admit, a Christian isn't necessarily any better morally than those that come to God on their own righteousness. The, the believer is not necessarily any more of an upstanding individual in society than their counterparts, but there's one big difference. The one comes to God in his own righteousness, the other comes to God clothed in the righteousness of his very dear son. And the scripture makes clear that it is those that will attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, of course, with the little scenario there, I'm painting a picture. I'm trying to give us an idea of what the process might look like. The scripture doesn't actually say, and it certainly doesn't paint the picture that I painted, but it does tell us that these events will occur in some form or fashion. The scripture does make clear that everyone that has ever lived or will ever live will come before God to either stand in their own righteousness or the righteousness of another and will be judged accordingly to see if they measure up to the holy standard of heaven. And the scripture makes clear that only those standing clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ will pass that assessment. And so we have the judgment seat of Christ for believers. We have the great white throne judgment for unbelievers, one, be giving, one beginning at the start of the tribulation, one not taking place all the way until the end of the millennium, and there's one third time of judgment the scripture records for us, and that is what is known as the judgment of the nations, or the judgment of the Gentiles. And that's our passage that we're looking at today in Matthew chapter 25. If you flipped away, turn back to Matthew 25, and we'll start in verse 31 this morning. I'm sure some of you are thinking, that was the intro? My goodness. <laughs> Verse 31 says, Now when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you have done it to one of the least of these my brothers, you have done it unto me. So the judgment of believers takes place in heaven just after the rapture. The judgment of unbelievers takes place at the gates of heaven just after the, at the, the millennium there that we talked about. Now this particular event is called the judgment of the nations and it takes place somewhere between those two other judgments. Notice verse 31. Notice how it begins. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. The Son of Man coming in his glory, that's a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. We've already looked at it, but the second coming of Jesus Christ is clearly stated to us as happening at the end of the tribulation period. We looked at it last week, and that is when Jesus will return with his church, with his bride. So the Son of Man coming in his glory, the second coming of Jesus Christ, verse 32, it says, Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now again, this is commonly referred to as the judgment of the nations, because in verse 32, it says, Before him will be gathered all the nations. And we looked at Revelation 20 earlier for a little bit of timing on some of those events we were discussing, we would look to Revelation chapter 19 for the timing of this particular event. Chapter 20 begins with the description of the 1,000-year reign of Christ. We call that the millennium. This event that we are, we are looking at now, it takes place just before the start of that 1,000-year reign. So the tribulation has come to an end. The nations have gathered together to war with one another and ultimately to war with Christ. We call that the Battle of Armageddon. The Antichrist and his false prophet have been neutralized and are awaiting final judgment. And most significantly, the Lord Jesus has returned. Just as he said he would do, just as the angels said he would do, just as the testimony of Scripture said he would do, the Lord Jesus has returned to establish his 1,000-year reign of righteous rule here on the earth. We learn from the prophet Joel, and so here's, this is where you have instances where you're a little bit from this prophet, a little bit from that prophet, and the prophet Joel tells us exactly where this will take place, where Christ will set up his throne for the nations to come before him for judgment. We read in Joel chapter 3, it says, let the nations stir themselves and come up, the idea is come up to Jerusalem, to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge the surrounding nations. This event that we're looking at here that Jesus is referencing in Matthew 25 will take place in the valley of Jehoshaphat. That valley is sometimes referred to by the Jewish people as the valley of the kings 
because they buried many of the kings with big monuments there. It's just outside of the Temple Mount wall. It's just at the base of the Mount of Olives. Today, uh, geographically, it's called the Kidron Valley. And there in the Kidron Valley, there in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, Christ will set up his throne and the nations of the earth will come, or the representatives of the nation, I'm not sure exactly how it works, but the nations themselves will come before him and be judged. Zechariah the prophet declares that when the Lord returns to begin the establishment of his reign on the earth, that will begin the healing of the nations. I'll read Zechariah to you. It says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. Ever wish you were in the Bible? Well, th there you are. If you're a part of his church, you're one of those holy ones that will be with him. We also read about you, me, in the book of Revelation as well last week. So you're in the Bible. How fun. Or whatever. You know, it's interesting that there was a, a big hotel chain, I don't know, Marriott, Hyatt, or something like that, and they wanted to build a hotel just on one of the edges of the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is a little bit rolling or so. There's a particular part you look at, and you're like, well, that's the Mount of Olives, but really, there's more to it. They wanted to build a hotel there, but after a geological study, they were not given permission to build the hotel there by the code enforcement people or whatever, because there is a... Uh, what do they call it? A fault line that runs right through there. And I, obviously, really? How about that? Because it's going to split in two uh, in that particular day. That's the practical way, the natural way the Lord's going to use that. But anyhow, this is the judgment of the nations. Now, the last two judgments were an assessment of the works of a person. This particular one, or like this particular one, this also is an assessment of the works of a person or really the assessment of the works of a nation that is going to be assessed and going to be judged. So again, I keep saying it, but I want you to get it. The judgment seat of Christ is for believers. The, the great white throne judgment is for unbelievers. And this particular judgment in Joel 3, Zechariah 14, what we're reading about here, it's where the nations of the earth will be judged for their deeds pertaining to their treatment of Christ's brothers during the tribulation period. They say, well, who are Christ's brothers? Well, first, look at verse 40. It says, truly I say to you, as, it did it, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, remember, somewhere in the midst of the tribulation, the Antichrist's true colors are revealed. And he morphs from this great world, peaceful leader that's got a solution for all the problems of the earth. He morphs and seemingly a friend of Israel. He changes from that and he's revealed to be who, real, who he really is. A satanic-inspired and even satanic-filled enemy of the people of God. And he unleashes his uh, wrath against the Jewish people on earth during the tribulation period. Jeremiah describes this as a time of distress. Many of our versions call it a time of trouble for the people of Israel. Jeremiah says that day is so great that there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. Notice, a time of great distress, a time of great trouble, even saying that that day is so great that there is none like it. Now, many of us, some of us even 
grew up really during parts of, or at least we can look back into the recent history of the Holocaust. Many of us studied it, learned it in school, saw the videos, watched Schindler's List. We have a good picture in our mind of how horrible a time that was for the Jewish people on the earth. And yet we see here that Jeremiah describes it, that that day is so great there is none like it, even beyond the horrors of the Holocaust. Now, the scripture makes clear that the Antichrist will not be alone in pouring out his satanic wrath upon the Jewish people in those final three years of the tribulation period. Again, that's what we call the Great Tribulation. The scripture makes clear that many inhabitants of the world will join in with the Antichrist and turn their wrath against the Jewish people. And many, though they may not join in in the persecution of the Jewish people, will nevertheless reject the Jewish people, even if it's just to save their own skin. I'm sorry, I can't help you. I'd love to help you. But if I help you, then I'm an enemy of the state, and so there's nothing I can do. The scripture makes clear that it will occur. And the judgment of nations, which occurs at the end of the tribulation, will serve the purpose of judging the nations of the earth, or representatives of the nations of the earth, for the way in which they treated the Jewish people during the time of their great distress. Matthew 25, 33, it makes clear that without a word, the king, that's Jesus, will winnow the sheep from the goats, He'll place one group on his right. He'll place one group on his left. To the sheep, he will declare in verse 34, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It says that in response, he says, in response to your actions of visiting me when I was sick, in response to your action of providing for me when I was hungry and when I was thirsty and when I was naked, in response to your action of welcoming me when I was a stranger running for my life with no place to go, you welcome me, he says, in response to those behaviors of treating the Jewish people that way, he says, they will now be blessed and rewarded for their deeds of righteousness. It says that, he says, uh, inherit the kingdom that was prepared for you, he says, from the foundation of the earth. Now, of course, those that are gathered there before the king will ask, when do we feed you? or give you a drink, or when did we clothe you or welcome you? We see that in verses 37 through 39. But notice how the king replies in verse 40. He says, truly I say to you, as you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you have done it for me. So at this judgment of the nations, Jesus is judging the people of the earth that have survived the great tribulation, and he's judging them based on how they treated the Jewish people, his brothers. Remember, he's of Jewish descent during the time of their great distress. Notice, he will consider a kind deed or act unto them as if it were a kind deed or act that was done toward himself. Now, conversely, Jesus will also consider the absence of a kind deed or act done toward his people in the time of their distress. He will consider the rejection of them when they came to them for help. He will consider the demonstration of a hard heart when a desperate people came looking for food or for a cool drink or for anything else they might need in the, midst, in the midst of the intense persecution that is being poured out on them as a people. And he'll consider that as well, the absence of those things. And it will lead Jesus to declare to those goats, as he calls them, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And of course, they'll declare, hey, we haven't, we've never met you. How could we have mistreated you? We've never even met you. 
And to them, as he did to the others, the Lord will respond, verse 45, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And so that is the judgment of the nations, which will take place after the tribulation. And so this sense of, well, do whatever I want, I'll get away with it. No, you won't. No one will. Everyone will be laid bare, exposed before uh, Christ when he comes to his throne. Everyone that has ever lived, whether it be the judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne of judgment, or this particular event here. Now, that's the interpretation of this passage. That's what I believe Jesus meant when he brought it up at this particular point in the context of what he is studying. This is one of the events that will accompany the end of the age before the start, so to speak, of eternity that we think of. This is one of those events. But I do think we can make not just, we cannot just interpret the passage. I think we can make application of this passage as well by looking at some points that have biblical merit elsewhere in the scripture. And so by way of application, I would suggest we learn a couple of things here from this particular passage. Number one is this, the Lord considers dearly how nations respond to and treat his people. The Lord considers dearly how nations respond to and treat his people. Now, I, I do not agree that every single thing that the modern na nation of Israel does is right and that the United States has to blindly follow everything that they do and decide to do. I don't necessarily think that that is the case, but this passage sure seems to make clear that the Lord's ancient promise to the patriarch Abraham continues to ring true today. And you, rec you may recall Genesis 12, he says to Abraham, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that's a promise made 4,000 years ago. 6,000, I don't know, a long time ago. 4,000 years ago, I believe it was. A promise made to Abraham, and it continues to ring to, th true to this day that the Lord considers dearly how nations respond to and treat his people. And so I think it should certainly serve as a warning to our nation and every other nation on the earth to consider carefully how it treats the Jewish people. Now, I believe there's a second application, a little more that hits home for us, and that is this, personally hits home for us, and that is that the Lord takes notice of the way in which we treat others. The Lord takes notice of the way in which we treat others, even if those acts are as small as providing someone with a cold drink or a hot meal or a warm place to stay. He goes so far as to even say, when you have done these things for the least of these, my brothers, you have done these things for me. Now, honestly, I can't imagine any one of us in this room that if we were walking down a street and we saw the Lord himself sitting on the ground or in need of something there, that we would pass by, avoid eye contact, quickly get to the other side of the road. If we knew it was the Lord that was there and the Lord was in need, I can't imagine any one of us not going over to help the Lord. And really, that's essentially what Jesus is saying, that you do when you go and you help somebody that's with a seemingly minor task. You've done these to the least of these, my brethren. You have done these things unto me. And so certainly I think it should cause us to consider what is my response? How come my heart isn't pricked? How come I don't move forward and help 
when, whether it's a small deed like that one particular guy that I need to pass a cold drink to, or it's an international thing, like there are refugees around the world that are running for their lives to save their children and their families. Now, I certainly understand there's logistical things that need to be worked out. Again, on the small scale, if I give this guy a buck, what's he going to use it for? Those kinds of things. What's the best way to help? And on the large scale, if I open up my doors and let anybody in, could terrorists come in and, and bomb and kill my family and my country? I understand there's logistical things. But I certainly hope, as believers, we don't harden our hearts and just say, well, that's your problem. Deal with it. Because Jesus addresses it, and the application for us is simply this. Your heart should be pricked. You should begin to run through in your mind, well, what can I do? And how can I help? Because Jesus says, the, the thing you do, the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me as well. Now that brings us to the end of the study of the olive vet discourse. Turn over in your Bibles real quickly to verse 1 of chapter 26. Maybe it's on the same page, so just scan down. If you have a Bible that has headings, then it might say something like the plot to kill Jesus or something like that. So remember, we've been looking at end times for like six weeks now. We may forget where we are in the context of things. We are in the final week of Jesus' earthly life. And so we've taken time, we've, uh, we took notice of the triumphal entry back in 21. We've taken notice of how he's repeatedly getting into it with the religious leaders. We've seen how the tension is rapidly rising. And as we come now to chapter 26, we'll look at it next time we're together. But now that we're moving into chapter 26, we're turning the page and we're kind of considering the entire reason that Jesus came. You may recall back in Mark 10, we quoted it when we were looking at a similar passage in Matthew. It says that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. So now as we enter into chapter 26, we are going to look at how Jesus Christ gave his life and all of the events that went with it. And I was reminded as I was considering the ending of the Olivet Discourse and the beginning of what we traditionally call the Passion of the Christ, I was reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians. Paul said this. He said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, communion, celebrating his death on the cross, you proclaim his death until he comes, which is what we've been looking at with the Olivet Discourse. And it just seemed that the two came together. And it seemed good to me. And I would like to think and to the Holy Spirit that we would take some time to close out our service today, close out our study of Matthew 24 and chapter 25 by celebrating communion with one another. And so we're going to invite the worship team to come on back up at this point. I'm going to pray, and then I'll say a few more words for you. Father, we thank you. Lord, that all things are in your hands. Lord, that there's no uncertainty about the direction of things moving forward as far as you're concerned. And Lord, that we can place our trust in you. Lord, even as perhaps we begin to see things moving in the direction, it seems, of the end of this age that we know. And Lord, if you come back in our lifetime or you come back individually for us and take us out of this world, in our own deaths. Lord, we know 
that every one of us that has ever lived on this earth will one day stand in your presence. And then it is going to matter dearly what we did with the message of the gospel here on the earth. And so, Lord, ready us either for your coming for us or our coming to you. Ready each one of us in this room. Deal with our hearts. Lay on us our need for salvation and convince us in our hearts and in our minds that there is only one way, the man Christ Jesus. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby they must be saved. And move us to the place where we are all right with you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we've seen, all these things are going to come to a close. Everything that we know, it might be our death, it might be the rapture of the church, but a day is coming. And as Jesus said, now is the time to ready yourself for his, his return. Paul said, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he's come. We proclaim, we boldly declare, you could change that word properly to, we preach the Lord's death until he returns. And the reason why we do it is because we acknowledge and proclaim that it is by his death and the faith that he has enabled us to have in the work of his death on the cross that any of us could ever be prepared to come into his presence. I hope that's something every one of us understands in this room, that none of the deeds that we have ever done will prepare us to come into his presence, but we are prepared and we proclaim that it's by his work, by his broken body, by his poured out blood that any of us could be declared righteous at all. And every time that we come to the communion table, we remember afresh that our hope of heaven is not any righteousness of our own, but it's his. Remember Paul's words earlier, he said that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which, which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And so the ushers are preparing to come forward. And as they do to distribute the elements, the worship team is going to lead us in song as well. What I would encourage each of us to do in this room, I'd exhort you, take some time during these songs. You don't need to necessarily sing them. You can if you want to. But take some time during these songs to pray and assess your own life. How are you doing with the Lord? Are you even in the Lord? And no doubt in a room of this side, there may be some of us that come here that aren't yet believers. What's your plan for when you go before the Holy God? Take some time to consider that. Ask yourself, have I come to him in faith to deal with my sin problem? And if in that time of prayer, in your heart you say, you know what? I haven't done anything to prepare for that day. And you dread that day. Well, then you can invite Jesus Christ into your life and the simpleness of your heart. You could ask him to forgive you of your sins. You could place your faith in the work that he did on the cross. You could commit yourself to his lordship in your life, to live in his ways and to walk in his ways and ask him to forgive you and receive the gift of salvation. And the promise of scripture is that he'll enter in and he'll wash you and he'll cleanse you of all your sins and he'll give you the righteousness of Christ. And so if that describes you while we pray and, and sing. You take some time to pray. Now, many of us in this room are a church, and so many of you are believers, and that's why you come here typically on a Sunday morning. And if that describes you, well, then I would point you to Paul's words. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul said, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now, he writes those words to believers, 
which means there's a time where we can come into his presence and celebrate communion and do so in a manner that is unworthy. And what we mean by that is simply to sort of go through the motion of consuming the bread and the juice without giving any serious consideration to the work of God in our lives as a result of the work he has done for our lives. And so we're just living for ourselves again. Believer, is there compromise in your life that the Lord's been putting his finger on, but you've been ignoring? And perhaps even saying, well, you know, I've been forgiven. He'll take care of it. Is there compromise in your life? Have you been fooling around with sin, playing with sin, getting as close to it without crossing that line that you think may be going too far, but you're playing around with it in the midst? Have you allowed your heart to grow hardened to the leading of God? Believers can do that. Is there a root of bitterness or selfishness or rebellion that you've allowed to develop in your heart? Partaking in communion with that going on inside of you is partaking of communion in a manner that is unworthy of the Lord and his death on the cross. And so I would encourage the believer here, if that describes you, this is an ideal time for all of us to allow the Lord to search out our hearts, to reveal any areas that haven't been given over to him and submitted to his will of late in our lives, to remind ourselves of the great cost of sin and rebellion, the very life of his dear son. And so if in the quietness of your own heart, the Lord reveals an area or maybe some areas, confess those areas of sin. Purpose in your heart to submit those areas to him as you go from this place. Allow the reminder of his death to proclaim to your heart this morning that by his stripes you have been healed from your sin problem. That because of the cross and your faith in his work on the cross, your sins have been forgiven, that you have been washed, and that you have been cleansed of unrighteousness. And then finally, that you are in Christ a new creation, filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered to walk every day of your life in the newness of Christ, that Christ's work brings. So for the believer this morning, allow the Lord to speak to you during this time. Let him minister your heart. Let him minister to your soul, even during these next couple songs. And you can just sit there and pray. But if you would like someone to pray for you, we have folks that are back there by the water fountain just outside that door over there. If you want to go and have someone pray for you, you can do that as well. But I'm going to leave you. I won't say another word this morning. Amen. All right, but I'm going to leave here. The elements are going to be distributed as the ushers do that. When the Lord works on your heart and ministers to you, you consume the bread, the cup on your own. You don't have to wait for all of us to do it together. But take some time to get yourself right with the Lord. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.